You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is March 17th, which means it's St. Patrick's Day. Yes, it's the day Irish people say, kiss me, I'm Irish. And people respond, no, you're not, Governor Cuomo, stop that. And please remember, we're still in a pandemic. So if you're gonna celebrate, do it safely by puking on a stranger from at least six feet away. Anyway, on tonight's show, how to escape a Zoom meeting, the gritty origin story of the filibuster, and we're gonna talk about what happened in Atlanta. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with the Bible. It's God's spicy tell-all memoir. And now, thanks to an amazing archeological find, we're learning more about some of the Bible's early drafts. An amazing discovery now in Israel, ancient fragments of biblical text dating back almost 2000 years were just found. An unprecedented survey of nearly 50 miles of cliffside desert caves near the Dead Sea led archeologists to the so-called Cave of Horrors and the roughly 80 new pieces of biblical text. It's called the Cave of Horror. And it's easy to see why, given the only way for archaeologists to access it is by rappelling down the side of a sheer cliff. The scroll fragments are small, some minuscule, but big enough to still draw wisdom from, says Dr. Orrin Abelman, who reads one of the uncovered passages. Uh, These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to one another. Render true and perfect justice in your gates. And do not contrive evil against one another. Speak the truth and do not contrive evil against one another. Wow, that's really beautiful. Although I I will admit, I don't know if it was worth, you know, rappelling down a sheer cliff into a cave of horrors for. Like if I'm going down into a cave, I wanna find a treasure chest or the secret to eternal life. Not a piece of paper that says, don't lie. I already knew that. Barney taught me that, come on. But still, man, it's so amazing how much wisdom there is from that era. You know, it actually makes me wonder how future generations are gonna see us. Because I don't think we're gonna be as profound to them. We have no lessons to teach them. We have found a tweet from the ancients. It says, boys be acting all tough, but then they wanna snuggle after they bust. Let us build our society around this. You know what's also cool is that they found something deep and meaningful. You know, because a lot of random Bible verses are pretty complicated. If you find the wrong one, it doesn't like actually mean anything on its own, you know? Abraham begat Isaac, or the length of the wall was 50 cubits, or thou shalt not commit adultery. What does that even mean? Moving on to technology news. By now, we're all familiar with Zoom. Very familiar with Zoom. It's the only piece of new technology that actually makes you prefer a phone call. Because as useful as this app has been, it's also been Um, how should I put this? Uh, a living nightmare, yeah? Which is why a lot of people will be looking forward to this update. A Brooklyn-based web developer has created a new tool for people sick of sitting on Zoom calls. He calls it the Zoom Escaper. He says that allows you to, quote, make your presence unbearable to others by sabotaging your audio stream. The Escaper not only mimics technical issues like delayed audio or echoes, it can also recreate annoying background sounds like crying babies and barking dogs. That's right. There's a new version of Zoom that has technical issues and annoying background noise built in. 
I mean, which I thought was just Zoom, but still, this is a great idea. An app that makes crying baby sounds so that you can leave a meeting. And I mean, that's good news for all of us, except for any new parents out there, because now you guys had a baby for nothing. <laughs> so look, I think this new feature is gonna be pretty popular. I mean, it's definitely a better way to get kicked off Zoom than how Jeffrey Tubin did it. And it's much more believable than my old tactic. Oh no, everybody, I'm sinking in quicksand. Ah, uh, the quicksand. Ah, uh, see you guys Thursday. But let's move on now to our main story, the filibuster. And before you say, oh, that is some boring Senate rule. What the f does that have to do with me, Trevor? First of all, please do not curse on my show. There's no need to be crude. And secondly, it actually has to do with pretty much everything right now. Like, think of all the big issues that President Biden wants to tackle. Voter suppression, protecting unions, immigration reform, finding out who snitched on his dog, Major. Right now, Senate Republicans can block Joe Biden from doing any of that stuff. Which is why now, Biden is saying he wants to shake things up. For the first time in his presidency, President Biden is making the case for not eliminating, but yeah. reforming the Senate uh, legislative filibuster. You've been reluctant to do away with the filibuster. Aren't you gonna have to choose between preserving the filibuster and advancing your agenda? Yes, but here's the choice. I don't think you have to eliminate the filibuster. You have to do it what it used to be when I first got to the Senate and back in the old days at a filibuster. You had to stand up and command the floor and you had to keep talking alone. So you gotta work for the filibuster. So you're for that reform. You're for bringing back the talking filibuster. I am. That's what it was supposed to be. It almost is getting to the point where there's, you know, democracy's having a hard time functioning. That's right. Biden doesn't want to stop the filibuster entirely. He just wants to slow it down. Kind of like how they try and slow drivers down with those little speed bumps that they installed around my neighborhood's elementary school. At least I think those were speed bumps. And this may seem like a small change, but making things just a little more annoying could actually make a big difference. I mean, think about it. We buy stuff online because we can get it in one click. But when you actually have to go down to the store, then all of a sudden you're like, man, well, ah, I have to find my keys. You know what? I don't need that hot medicine. I'll be fine. But the question is, how did the filibuster become the legislation buster that it is today? Well. Let's find out in another episode of If You Don't Know, Now You Know. Let's start with the simplest explanation of the filibuster. It's basically a loophole in the Senate rules for blocking legislation. Because even though you only need 51 votes to pass a bill, you need 60 votes to stop the debate over voting on that bill in the first place. Which means as long as the minority party can keep debating, then the bill is basically dead. And if you're wondering, why on earth would the founding fathers put that in the constitution? Well, they didn't. The filibuster began as a historical accident. It's not some great tradition in the Senate that's protected by the Constitution. It happened in 1805 after Aaron Burr suggested a rules change. Aaron Burr, as vice president in the early 1800s, was going over these rules of the Senate, and he made a critical mistake. He thought, we don't really need a way to stop a debate, do we? I mean, there's just a few of us. Like, we will debate until we're done, until everyone's had their say. How slow could the Senate really be? Nobody knew it at the time. It'd be three more decades before the first filibuster was actually mounted. But that was the moment the Senate created the filibuster. That's right. The filibuster isn't in the Constitution. It's just a rule that was made up by that guy who shot Lin-Manuel Miranda. 
And it didn't even start out as a way to block legislation. It was a way for the Senate to keep debate open, not to debate for so long that nobody could ever actually vote on a bill. So its original purpose is completely different from what people decided to use it for later on. It's insane. It's sort of like how Facebook was invented as a way to see which of your classmates were hot, and then years later became a way to organize a lynch mob for Mike Pence, who, by the way, is hot. And you might wonder why senators back then would want to risk having an endless debate. But don't forget, guys, in the 1800s, there wasn't anything better to do. I mean, it was either listen to Thaddeus talk about a bill, or take a bumpy carriage ride back to your plantation where a bunch of black people wanted to discuss their terms of employment you're probably gonna wanna hear what Thaddeus has to say. Either way, eventually senators realized that they could block legislation by debating forever. And that could get pretty ridiculous because there was no rule on what counted as a debate. So senators came up with all kinds of random ways to fill that time, which led to moments like this. Louisiana Democrat Huey Long filibustered several bills. In arguing against a bill, he recited recipes for salad dressing and discussed at length the best way to fry oysters. His most famous filibuster was on June 12, 1935. He was able to speak without stop for 15 hours and 30 minutes. Running out of things to say about the bill, he offered to give advice on any subject someone requested. Yep, in 1935, this white dude rambled on about nothing for over 15 hours, and somehow he gets zero credit for inventing the podcast. So unfair. But the Senate is crazy, man. This guy got on the floor and talked for 15 hours about oysters and salad dressing. I mean, they should make it a rule that you at least have to try to connect your speech to the bill that you're supposed to be debating. I guarantee this salad dressing is delicious. But you know what doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth? Letting women wear pants. But still, I'm not gonna lie. It's impressive that he could talk for that long. That shit is hard. I can't even think of 20 seconds of stuff to talk about to a coworker in an elevator. So, going to floor nine, huh? (laughs) Yeah, how's this weather we're having? So much weather. I think I'm just gonna get out here. (laughs) I will say though, it makes sense that senators are so good at filibustering because most of them are grandparents. Don't forget that. Visit your granddad and see if he doesn't take three hours to tell you a story that happened in 20 minutes. You're filibustering, grandpa! But it wasn't until the late 1950s that the filibuster started to become more common. And what cause was so inspiring to senators at that time that they just had to stand up and speak for hours? Being racist. For a few decades, the filibuster is used, but pretty sparingly. Then the Senate starts to consider civil rights legislation, and Southern senators really hate this but they don't have the votes to actually defeat the bills. So they start using the filibuster. It became a tool that Southern senators used to prevent the federal government from intervening in racial segregation. Perhaps the most famous one was when South Carolina's Strom Thurmond took the floor against the 1957 Civil Rights Act. Thurmond notoriously read the phone book, clocking in at more than 24 hours to try to block a 1957 civil rights bill. How did you last 24 hours? You never left the Senate floor. I had gone down to the Senate bath for three or four days beforehand and dried out my body. In the sauna? Yeah, so I wouldn't be tempted to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and, so, and, and so I was able to do that. <laughs> oh, Strom, you are too much. 
<laughs> and when I think about all those black people who suffered because of you. <laughs> Yo, for real, man, how gross was that story? This guy dried out his body to help him filibuster? You know someone is committed to racism when they're willing to jerky themselves for it. And it really is amazing what humans can accomplish when confronted with their worst fears. Just as a mother will be able to lift a car off of the ground to save her child, a racist senator will suddenly be able to speak for days at a time, only if it will stop a black person from using his bathroom. I mean, the filibuster was used to block black people so many times, I'm surprised they never use it at nightclubs. Uh, uh-oh, a black guy. Hey, before I let you in, have I ever told you about my salad dressing? Two tablespoons of lemon juice, a pinch of rosemary, and what you wanna try and do is make sure that, okay, he's gone, all right. Now, eventually, the Senate decided that all of these talkathons were slowing things down too much. So in 1975, they made what they thought was a small adjustment to the rules. Instead of having to speak, a senator could just announce that they planned to speak. And unless there were 60 votes to prevent them, the filibuster would be considered successful. And that actually worked for a while, until two things happened. America elected a black president and a Senate minority leader who was willing to do anything to stop him. The practice became an art form for Republicans under minority leader Mitch McConnell. During the Obama years, McConnell impeded nominees and legislation left and right. He has the nickname the Grim Reaper for a reason. Today, it's being used in a different way. It's being used to effectively kill a measure, a bill, a proposal that the minority really doesn't like. In fact, there have been more filibusters during Obama's time in office than in the 50s, 60s, and 70s combined. Over the entire history of the Senate, before President Obama, just 68 judicial and executive branch nominees were blocked and required closure, which ends a filibuster and forces an up or down vote. By contrast, 79 of President Obama's nominees required cloture from 2009 to 2013 alone. Republicans used the filibuster against virtually every controversial bill and nomination, and some that weren't controversial at all. Mitch McConnell has the devious distinction of being the only sitting senator that filibustered his own bill. God damn. Mitch McConnell loves to filibuster so much, he filibusted his own bill. And he had to get four ribs removed to be able to do it. The man is sick. But yes, once Obama became president, McConnell began filibustering everything. Obama wanted to appoint a judge, McConnell blocked it. Obama wanted to pass a bill, McConnell stopped him. Obama wanted to watch something on Netflix, McConnell hid the remote in his neck folds. I haven't seen it anywhere. Maybe you should read a book. And once McConnell decided to block Obama's entire agenda, that became the new precedent. You know, when Democrats got the chance, they blocked President Trump's agenda just as hard to the point where now, Practically every piece of legislation in the Senate needs 60 votes to pass. And that's why there's a movement to get rid of the filibuster entirely. Because it's not healthy for a democracy if the losers can always block the winners from passing their agenda. Now, the Democrats don't have the votes right now to kill the filibuster completely. But based on Joe Biden's interview, it seems like they may be willing to make it more annoying again. Which won't stop filibusters from happening, but at least we'll finally get to find out what Mitch McConnell uses in his salad dressing. Oh, so what you want is the cheers of poor people. And then you want to grind it up with oppression. So, that's the filibuster. And if you don't know, now you know. 
All right, when we come back, the multi-talented Cynthia Erivo will talk to me about portraying the Queen of Soul, and we'll be chatting about what happened in Atlanta. So stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. There's something else in the news that we unfortunately have to talk about. Last night's horrific mass shooting in Georgia. This morning, police are investigating a string of deadly shootings at three massage parlors in and around Atlanta. In all, eight people were killed. Officials say six of them are believed to be Asian women. Police have arrested one suspect, 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long. Officials are not releasing a motive, but the shootings come at a time of increased hate crimes targeting Asian Americans across the country. In a statement, the group Stop AAPI Hate calls it an unspeakable tragedy, writing, this latest attack will only exacerbate the fear and pain that the Asian American community continues to endure. It's worth noting, we, we talked about the motivation there for a moment, um, that the suspect said that it was not racially motivated, that perhaps it had to do with some sexual addiction and he was trying to take out uh, what he thought was the cause of that. He does claim that it was not racially motivated. He apparently has an issue, uh, what he considers a, a, a sex fiction, and sees these locations as something that allows him to, uh, to, um, to go to these places. And, and it's a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. So he, he understood um, the gravity of it, and he was pretty much fed up. It had been kind of at the end of his rope, and, uh, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. This is truly horrifying. Eight people dead, six of them, Asian women. And soon we'll learn all about them and who they were in life, but all we know right now is that they are dead and a 21-year-old white man with a gun killed them. And what's been sad about the story is not just the loss of life, but all of the auxiliary things that have been happening around the story. You know, like one of the first things that's been the most frustrating for me is seeing the shooters say, oh, it wasn't racism, it was sex addiction. First of all, f*** you, man. You killed six Asian people. Specifically, you went there. If there's anyone who's racist, it's a mother who kills six Asian women. Your murders speak louder than your words. Six Asian women were killed. And you know, in a way, what makes it even more painful is that we saw it coming. We see these things happening. People have been warning. People in the Asian community have been tweeting. They've been saying, please help us. We're getting punched in the streets. We're getting slurs written on our doors. We're getting people coming up to us just saying, thanks for, thanks for COVID. Thanks for spoiling the world. Thanks. We've seen this happening. And while we're fighting for it, there are many people who've been like, oh, stop being so woke and so dramatic. Kung flu, come on. Ha 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 ha. It's just a joke. Yeah, yeah, it's a joke that has come at one of the most tense times in human history. You knew that something like this could happen. If you just apply your mind, you know that it's going to happen. This guy didn't go and kill these women by mistake. It wasn't a... It's like he he knew what he was doing. And it's so frustrating to see this keep happening in America over and over again. America sees things coming. It knows something is gonna happen, but it does nothing to stop it. But then is all, all, all in on saying, oh, so tragic, oh, so true. Who could have predicted this tragedy? Anyone who was looking at it could. Why are people so invested in solving the symptoms instead of the cause? America does this time and time again. A country that wants to fight the symptoms and not the underlying conditions that cause those symptoms to take effect. Racism, misogyny, gun violence, mental illness. And honestly, this incident might've been all of those things combined. 
because it doesn't have to be one thing on its own. America is a rich tapestry of mass shooting motivations. But whatever you do, please do, don't tell me that this thing had nothing to do with race. Even if the shooter says that, he thinks it had to do with his sex addiction. You can't disconnect this violence from the racial stereotypes that people attach to Asian women. This guy blamed a specific race of people for his problems and then murdered them because of it. If that's not racism, then the word has no meaning. And as if the violence, as if the, the, the trauma isn't enough, the, the part that breaks my brain, and I think so many people get affected by this as well because it feels like you're crazy when you're watching it, is where you see the police officer come out and almost trying to humanize the shooter more than the people who got shot. He was at the end of his rope. It, it was a bad day for him. For him? Yo, yesterday was a bad day for him? No, yesterday was a bad day for the people who lost their lives. It's a bad day for, it's, it's, it's always interesting who police try and find the humanity in. Like I can guarantee you, if a black person or brown person went on a mass killing spree in a white neighborhood, not a f- would a police officer go on TV and say, well, he was kind of at the end of his rope and, and this is what he did. They barely have patience for black protesters who are not killing anybody. And the frustrating thing is that it did not have to happen. It does not have to happen. From the top to the bottom, the politicians who are gonna cry now and say, oh, we're so sorry. Yeah, but when it's happening, when politicians are out there saying Kung flu and all of these, what are we doing then? We can all do something to try and fight against this. We can't stop every evil person. Please, I'm not saying that. No, someone's gonna be like, oh, there's always gonna be evil. Yeah, but you know what we can try and do is create an environment where we're not letting specific people be targeted because of the color of their skin. In this instance, find an anti-hate organization. Try and work with them. Reach out to people who need support. Donate your money, donate your time, whatever you can, but do something. And most importantly, let's try and pay attention so that it doesn't happen again. Because the truth is, we could see this coming. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Tony, Emmy, and Grammy-winning actor and singer, Cynthia Erivo. We talked about what it was like portraying Aretha Franklin in her upcoming anthology series and how she's been keeping busy during this pandemic. Cynthia Erivo, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you. <laughs> um, of all the human beings I encounter in my life, you are one who I am not eager to see again, because every time I see you, you've achieved yet another thing. And so it puts the pressure on me to have a thing to talk about. Like before this interview, I was like, maybe I should have a child just so that when I talk to you, I go, oh, Cynthia, what's happened since the last time we spoke? And then you go, well, Trevor, I won a Grammy. And then I go, well, I have a child, but I have, I have nothing of the sort. So um, congratulations on, you have an Emmy, you have a Grammy, you have a Tony. You are one short of being the youngest EGOT winner ever. Do you ever take a moment to look at your own life and just go, wow? I've been, I've been doing that over this time that we've had, like stopping and making sure that I like embrace what's happening in the moment. Cause I've not been very good at that previously, but because things, because things happen so fast. Um, and I've sort of, sometimes it's kind of what on earth and how did I get here? And when did this happen? And was I awake for it all? And did I miss something? <laughs> That's how it feels a lot of the time, yeah. I remember watching you in The Color Purple, and I remember the whole time, 
it was almost distracting because I was like, who is this human being? And everyone has said that about your singing, about your performances, about how much you put into it. We see you when you're on screen. We see you. I mean, now you, you, you're playing Aretha Franklin in, in the new Nat Geo series, Genius. And I mean, again, you embody this person. You embody her songs. You embody her work. Do you think that... Aretha being such a big influence in your life is a big reason that you play her the way that you do? I think so. Yeah, for sure. I think that she, there, she was so singular. There was, so, there was something so very individual about her. And that sounds so plain to say, but, but there aren't very many people who you're like, that's her. There's no one else like her. When you hear uh, her, voice, yes, right. that's her. You, there's something she'll do the way she'll she'll take a breath before she sings the next note. That's an Aretha thing. And you know, when we were learning music, more and more as I learned um, songs, the thing that she would always do is just whatever. She, whenever she was performing live, she would just sing whatever she felt like singing, however she felt like singing. Wow. The melody, and then there's how Aretha sings it. That's what wow. happened. What I was learning when I was learning all of her music is that the this is how Aretha sings it. You know, you hear uh, a border song, which is originally by Elton John, and you think, well, Aretha doesn't sing it like that. And when Aretha sings it, it's a completely different song. That's yes, yes. The, the power she has. It's the idea that she has this really wonderful ability to, to communicate a feeling and an, and an emotion through a song. And she it's like speaking to people. It's like a language that she speaks. And that's something that, for me, has really influenced how I perform, what I what I sing, what I choose to sing, how I sing, mm -hmm. how I act, because it really is about first and foremost communication first, you know. And and she, you know, she was also afraid of being imperfect when she sang. There were times right. fall off a rip and it wasn't, but it still was the perfect thing to have done in that moment, you know. So yeah, just I, and I've been listening to her for such a long time that her voice just feels like it's imprinted on my. Like in my head is, yeah, one of my my favorites. I'd love to know when you're singing Aretha because you 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 you're one of those people where you have that talent where I know what you sound like when you sing, but then you can sing like other people when they sing. And so I mean that that for me is like an, an insane talent. I mean singing was already like the hardest thing to do, but then you can sing like another good person can sing because I can sing like my uncle can sing, but that's not an achievement. You can <laughs> sing like Aretha Franklin can sing. I'd love to know like in in a, in a technical sense. What what are you doing when you when you, when you're doing that? Like, how hard is it to sing like another singer? And are you trying to completely mimic Aretha, or are you trying to bring something that is different to Aretha singing in that moment? Like, like I'd love to know what you're trying to do when you are portraying Aretha and when you're singing the songs because you are singing them. Yeah. So um, I had an amazing vocal coach with me. Her name's Antea Bachet, Antea Joy Bachet, and we would sit and listen to each song for about an hour an hour or two, and just break it down bit by bit by wow. bit. Wow. Um, so that you would hear all of the choices she was making. Um, I'll pick a song. Uh, when we would do, oh yeah, I'll, I'll pick Border Song because it's an easy one. Um, the, the, the basic uh, melody is, Holy Moses, I have been deceived. I've seen the spectre, he has been me too. She does. Holy Moses, I have been removed. I've seen the specter, he has been here too. This is cousin from down the line, brand new people who ain't my kind. 
So you're just going to carry on talking like you didn't do that right now. You're just going to like, you're just going to go from that and then you're going to start a sentence as if you didn't just do that right now. <laughs> you know, I, I used to read books as a kid about like how sailors would crash into the rocks listening to sirens. And I was like, these people were really not focused in life. I understand it when I listen to you sing. And I genuinely mean that. You, you, you play her uh, as a complete human being because that's what Aretha was. You know, we know Aretha as a singer. We know her as a performer. What we learn over time is so many of these performers was, were dealing with so many demons, you know, whether it be domestic abuse, whether it be a, a relationship with her father where she was constantly trying to escape. You are on a path that many of these superstars have been on before. I would love to know as Cynthia, how do you maintain like your mental health? Like how do you keep yourself healthy and like not bogged down by all the pressures that your success sort of creates? I mean, you, you have a children's book. You know, you, you, you have you have this series, you, you, you have movies, you have an album that's coming up. You are in that vein, even though you're portraying them. A, do you ever worry about how so many of these great artists get burdened by this world and then leave us too soon? And B, what do you do as Cynthia to just give yourself an opportunity to not worry about it and enjoy it? Yeah, I, 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 I think I've spent so long watching some of our greats be running away from things that have hurt them, not really having the dialogue, not really having the language to express what, what they're feeling. And also in the black community, we don't talk about getting help, having right. therapy enough. And I'm lucky that I'm part of a time that is starting to really discuss what it looks like for someone like me to reach out and, get, and go and get some help. So I do have therapy, I do. Um, and it's wonderful because it means I can, when I can't process something myself, I'm able to go and speak to someone right, and yeah. like talk it out and figure something out. And at the same time, I also, I, I can sometimes be really hard on myself very hard on myself if, if something doesn't quite go right or if uh, I see a performance and I'm like, oh, I could have done that instead. Or if I feel like I have, not everyone is going to like the things that you do. And so you're yeah, yeah. On, a, on, a, on a path to try and please everyone with what right. you do. There is a part of me that is starting to learn that you cannot do that. It's impossible. And if you did, you would be very boring. So it's okay to not please everyone as long as when you on your on your path to creating something, the thing that you're searching for is this truth. And the thing mm. that you're searching for is honesty. And your honesty and your truth might not be someone else's, might not be in in alignment with what someone else believes is truth. But as long as you're from a place of um kindness and love, you're, you're okay. And, and I think there's a knowledge in, that I have to, I've told myself that uh, when good things happen, I'm, I'm deserving, you know? Sometimes we talk ourselves out of the good things that, that come our way and we make excuses as to, well, you know, maybe I'm, I don't really deserve this one. I'm not as good as that person. Maybe it should have gone to, well, no, it came to you. So. Thank the universe, thank God, thank whatever you believe in for the thing that has come your way and wish abundance on yourself and, and everyone else that might actually be in your path as well. And deserving, you are indeed. Uh, I hope to keep having conversations with you over the years. Yeah, I'll keep stacking up the awards and I'll stack up children just to keep up with you. I'm gonna call my children, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, and Emmy, just to be <laughs> like, ah, yes, these, these are my EGOTs. 
You, so you've got trophies. Um, <laughs> Cynthia Arrigo, thank you so much for joining me on the show and congratulations on all of your success. Thank you. Genius Aretha will premiere March 21st on National Geographic. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, it is Women's History Month, so please consider supporting Black Girls Code, an organization dedicated to leveling the playing field for girls of color in STEM. By supporting Black Girls Code, you're helping empower young girls to use technology to change their lives and all of our lives for the better. If you can help out, then go to the link below and please donate whatever you can. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, if you hear a big explosion coming from somebody's Zoom, that shit is fake. They're probably fine. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.